I invite you to open up your Bibles. Now, if you haven't done that for a while, this is the chapter to read. Let me encourage you with that. Philippians chapter 4. And we'll read the whole chapter. The word of God where it says, Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learnt or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again, when I was in need. Not that I'm looking for a gift, but I'm looking for what may be credited to your account. I have received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all the saints in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Thanks, Carl.
accidental, sure. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, as we've just sung a few moments ago, we pray that you would glorify glorify your name through us, Uh, glorify your name through me as I speak, uh, and through all of us as we listen and receive your words uh, and put our trust in you. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, on the uh, wall beside the staircase at the theological college that I attended, there was a grand staircase that went up uh, to the second story, and on the wall there were all these photos from the 50 years uh, of the college, all the students who'd ever been there every year, they would have the annual uh, photo, Uh, and you'd often find people standing on the stairs and looking at the photos and uh, laughing at the ridiculous Uh, facial hair of people over the years, laughing at the clothes that people wore, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. Uh, But I think what was the most sobering uh, experience was uh, one of my lecturers who'd been teaching there for 20 or 30 years would often say, he'd often see people standing looking at the photos and he'd say, how sad it was to think about all those people who he taught and who'd been through that college who were no longer, not just no longer in Christian ministry, but no longer even Christians at all. Here were people who'd been so on fire for the gospel that they'd moved across half the country to go to uh, Geelong to study for ministry. And yet there was a disturbingly high percentage of people who were no longer following Jesus. Of course, the flip side of that is that there was uh, actually quite a large number of people who were still following Jesus and were still in ministry. But the warning in those photographs, I think, is the ease with which, having begun well, we can give up our Christian faith. Jesus speaks pretty honestly about that in his parable of the sower. He talks about the seed which was planted and, and it, you know, different things happened And there was a seed which shoots up quickly, which receives the message of the gospel with joy, but then dies, dies away. Uh, And there's a seed which receives the gospel, hears the gospel, but then is choked by the deceitfulness of riches and by the worries of the world. And here in this letter at the end of chapter 3, you might remember from last week if you were here, Paul talks about those people who now walk as enemies of the cross of Christ, people who had been Christians, but people who weren't Christians any longer. And so at the end of this letter, Paul's preoccupation is with seeing these Philippians and us stand firm in the faith. He says in verse 1, Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, this is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. We're called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And that means standing firm in the gospel to the very end. Verse 1 of chapter 4 points both backward and forwards. We're to stand firm in the light of all the things that Paul has already said. We're to stand firm in the light of our partnership in the gospel. We're to stand firm uh, in 
as we live lives worthy of the gospel. We're to stand firm as we pursue Christ. But we're also to stand firm by doing the things that Paul goes on to list in the rest of this chapter. And in many ways, actually, all these things flow out of those things that he has already said. Uh, And what he's doing here is showing how partnership in the gospel, pursuit of Christ and living a life worthy of the gospel, he's showing how those things actually work out in the cut and thrust uh, of daily life. So how then do you and I stand firm in the gospel? If there's such a great risk uh, to wander away from the faith, how do we stand firm? Well, there's, I think, seven things that we can see in this passage that Paul highlights that enable us to stand firm. And the first way that we stand firm in the gospel is by agreeing with each other. So verse 2, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, doing along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers uh, whose names are written in the book of life. In many ways, Paul's uh, command here or request goes back to chapter 2 and to his appeal for unity. There he spoke uh, in generalities, but here he's giving a particular example. He is thinking of a particular disagreement that's happening in the, uh, in the fellowship of believers that risks damaging the gospel, which risks damaging the church. He asks uh, one of the recipients of the letter, the, royal, the loyal yoke fellow, we don't know who that is, but Paul appeals to that man to help uh, Euodia and Syntyche to sort out their differences and to re-engage in gospel ministry. Disagreements uh, in the life of the church and in Christian life can be obstacles to perseverance. Both for the people involved, they can be obstacles, and they can also be obstacles for the people who are looking on, other Christians. Sometimes a disagreement becomes so heated uh, that one or both of the people involved don't just leave the church, but they leave the faith. And what an incredible tragedy that is when somebody leaves the faith, especially when someone leaves the faith over a triviality, like the colour of the toilet paper or whatever it might be. Uh, which It's almost not funny, actually, because the tragedy is that people do leave over such ridiculously small things. We let disagreements become bigger than they are, uh, and it costs the faith of some. Uh, if you're caught up in a disagreement at the moment, please watch out. Watch out that it doesn't destroy your faith and watch out that it doesn't destroy the faith of the person that you're disagreeing with. Work to resolve the issue both for, your, uh, for both of your sakes uh, and if you need help with it, then ask for help. Ask uh, a Christian friend, a man or woman who's a wise Christian friend, ask myself or ask Steve or an elder or someone that you respect uh, for help in sorting through that. Division and disagreements can drive the people involved from the faith, but sometimes they can drive other Christians from the faith as well. People looking on see the division and they think to themselves, well, I don't want to have any part of this. If this is what the church is like, see you later. They may not give up straight away, but they lose heart and eventually they give up the faith entirely. So it may not be that they say, well, that's it, I'm going. 
But over 5, 10, 15 years, they just are worn down by watching people disagree and they give up on the gospel. I'll never forget a number of years ago, a friend, of I, a friend and I had got to a point where we were finding it very difficult to get along. Uh, and it wasn't because of one thing, but as is so often the case, it was, it was the result of a long list of small things that were incredibly frustrating to one or both of us. And I remember a wise Christian friend said to us, basically, people know that you're friends, and if you can't sort this out, it will damage the gospel. What a wise and true thing to say. He was right, wasn't he, that our disagreement was bigger than ourselves. And nothing, I think, was as powerful for both of us as that comment. And by God's grace, God uh, helped uh, the two of us to resolve our differences, which is a great blessing, so that uh, now actually you would never know that uh, we, we were at one time uh, at such loggerheads. And God, by God's grace, he often does that. He uses evil uh, in our lives, not to weaken our partnership in the gospel, but to strengthen it. So disagreement is an opportunity, actually, for being strengthened in the faith, rather than being weakened in it, if we can sort it out. How do you stand firm in the gospel? Uh, You agree with each other uh, and don't let division drive yourself or others away. The call is not to agree in everything or to ignore error, rather, as a few weeks ago, it's a call to let our fundamental agreement in the gospel trump uh, our small differences. So we stand firm in the gospel by agreeing with each other. Second, we always rejoice. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Uh, It's a simple enough command to understand, isn't it? (laughs) What do you have to do? Rejoice, okay, done. But that's actually very hard to do. Uh, It's easy enough, isn't it, when things are difficult to let that define our lives. We live miserable lives, not in the sense that... uh, we face difficult circumstances every day, but we live miserable lives in the sense that we carry our misery around with us. We hitch it up on our shoulders and we take it with us wherever we go. Uh, We carry it to school. We carry it uh, to our workplace. We take it home. We bring it with us to the dinner table. We take it to bed with us. It occupies our mind 24 hours, seven days a week. It's what dominates our conversation. But even if misery doesn't dominate our thoughts, we can still still end up living lives of what you might call begrudging acceptance. So we sort of say to ourselves, well, if this is what I have to put up with, then this is what I have to put up with. It's kind of a British stoicism rather than gospel joy. But that's not what Paul is saying, is it? He's saying rejoice. He's not saying make do with what you have to put up with. He's saying rejoice in the Lord always. The remedy to misery and to stoicism is deliberate rejoicing. And the key to deliberate rejoicing is to rejoice in the Lord always, to rejoice in the Lord. We're not called to be joyful about misery We're not called to rejoice that we've seen our husband or wife or son or daughter or friend or brother or sister or or whoever buried in the ground. We're not called to rejoice in that. 
We're not called to rejoice that we've lost our job or uh, that our house has burned down or that we've been robbed. Or to, to rejoice that a, a friend has walked away from the faith, a child has walked away from the faith. We're not called to rejoice in that. We're not called to be happy about tragedy, but to rejoice in the Lord. That is, in the face of such depressing realities, to say, I'm going to celebrate the good things that God has done. There's a lot of rubbish in my life at the moment that I don't know how to cope with, but you know what? I'm going to rejoice in the good things that I do know about. So your health suffers a major setback and you say to yourself, God, you know that I'm suffering at the moment, but thank you for all that you've done for me in Jesus. Thank you that you've conquered death on the cross. or you fail a subject at school, or at uni, or at TAFE, or whatever, and it demolishes your dreams for the future. The, the thing that you wanted to do is no longer possible. And you say, God, this isn't what I had planned, but thank you that whatever else is true of my life, that I am in Christ, and that nothing can separate me from that. Or you face every day the sadness of a broken family, and you say, Heavenly Father, it's so hard to live every day with this reality, with this mess, but thank you that you love me. And thank you that all my sins were nailed to the tree. One Old Testament writer put it like this, Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines... Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Saviour. It's a resolution to rejoice, isn't it? There's nothing in his present experience in which to rejoice, but he says, and yet I will rejoice in God my Saviour. God calls us to rejoice in the Lord, not just some of the time, but all the time. Uh, and we need to do that if we are to stand firm in the faith. How do you stand firm in the gospel? You always rejoice. Third, you let your gentleness be evident. Verse 5, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near, says Paul. It seems quite likely that this command is connected with the previous one. That is, just as we need to rejoice even in difficult times, so also in difficult times, we need to let our gentleness be evident to people. Uh, when we're suffering, not least when we're suffering as the Philippians probably were at the hands of other people, it's easy in that situation to become confrontational and to stand on our rights and to quickly engage in conflict. But the key to standing firm in the Christian faith is to live a life of evident gentleness and forbearance and a life of mercy. I think that that will become more and more crucial for us in the coming years uh, as Christianity is more and more pushed uh, to, the, to the outer. It will become more and more important for us to be known for gentleness, not known for wimpiness, uh, not known for not standing for anything, but known for standing for something and being gentle about it, known for living with those who disagree with us, this past week, uh, Bill Shorten 
uh, agreed eventually not to remove exceptions for religious groups from the Anti-Discrimination Act uh, that allow people like religious organisations uh, to only employ people who share their religious convictions on uh, issues of sexuality. Uh, so that means that churches are free then not to employ people who embrace the things that the Bible calls sin, like uh, homosexuality or uh, adultery uh, or gender fluidity. The Greens, on the other hand, want to abolish those exceptions. And the result of that would essentially be to spell the beginning of the end for the free practice of Christian faith uh, in Australia. we would no longer be able to freely hold to the very things which Jesus calls us to hold to. How do we respond to that? Well, Paul says, God says, we respond with gentle resolution. We respond not with indifference, but with resolve. This is what we stand for. And we respond not with anger or defensiveness, but with gentleness. Jesus was the master of gentle resolution and forbearance. His forbearance took him to the cross as an innocent man. And in a climate of opposition, forbearance of the kind that Jesus showed is essential for us as well if we are to stand firm in the faith. We need to be people who can put up with great opposition and great hostility and we need to be able to do that with kindness. Patient suffering is a necessary ingredient for us to stand firm uh, in the faith. And here's the encouragement for us to do that. Paul says, the Lord is near. That is, Jesus will return and put it right. You don't have to put it right. You can be gentle because God will put it right. Or as Paul says in Romans 12, do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. How do you stand firm in the gospel? You let your gentleness be evident to all. Fourth, you refrain from anxiety and pray. Verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. There's so much, isn't there, in our world to cause our anxiety. Just thinking about the political situation is enough uh, to cause us anxiety. But you can watch the news every day and that will give you half an hour of reasons to be worried about the world. Car accidents, murders, robberies, political instability, financial chaos, funding shortfalls, war, famine, the list goes on. They always end with a picture of a dog who's just retired or something like that to try and make us feel better about the world. But it's a bit late, isn't it? You know, one minute out of 30 really doesn't do a whole lot of good. But the remedy to anxiety is to pray. God says, don't be anxious, instead pray. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, pray. We often get it around the other way, I think, and that is we're anxious about everything and pray about nothing. But prayer is the great antidote to worry. Are you worried about the future? Well, pray about it. Are you worried about the state of the world? Then pray. Are you worried that you're a hopeless parent uh, and that you're damaging the lives of your children? Well, pray. Are you worried about losing your job or 
Worried about your financial situation? Pray about it. Are you worried about the exams that are coming up or what are you going to do in the future? What what are you going to do with your life? Pray about it. Are you worried about sin in your life? Pray. Are you worried about your eternal destiny? Pray. That doesn't mean don't do anything else. It means pray and see if there's anything that you can do to work through the situation. But don't do any of that until you've prayed. Let prayer be your first recourse. And notice that the remedy is not only to make requests in prayer, but also to be thankful in our prayers. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. That bit is absolutely crucial. It goes back to the command to rejoice always in the Lord. As you pray, practice thankfulness. Before you ask God for things, give thanks for the things that God has already given. You might not feel thankful, uh, but the more you say thankful, the more grateful that you will be. And the more thankful you are for what God has done in the past, the more you'll trust that God will look after you in the future. And I think that without that thankfulness, we won't be able to embrace or to receive the next promise or encouragement that Paul gives us. That is, here's the encouragement to pray with thanksgiving and to present our requests, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guide your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I think we read that prayer, that what Paul is saying, we say, present our requests to God and the peace of God will guard our hearts. Isn't that great? But that's only half the formula. We need to not only request, but also give thanks. And most of all we need to do that when we don't feel thankful, when we don't feel able to trust. When we are anxious, we need to consciously think to ourselves, what is it that I can be thankful for? And we need to give thanks. And so let the peace of God which transcends all understanding guard our hearts. I love that. The peace of God which transcends all understanding. The peace of God that doesn't make sense. The peace of God which defies logic. You're facing all this rubbish in your life. The world's falling to pieces, going to hell in a handbasket. And you're at peace. It's remarkable, isn't it, to read those letters of missionaries from other countries who are facing incredible turmoil. And they have this incredible peace that doesn't make sense. But it's a gift of God. The peace of God which guards our hearts. How do you stand firm in the gospel? You refrain from anxiety and pray. Fifth, you think about what is noble. Verse 8, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Why do we saturate our minds uh, with the things that God hates? Or saturate our minds with things that aren't good or aren't noble or aren't edifying? Uh, We immerse ourselves in television shows and films and books that drag our thinking down. The themes aren't at all noble. 
think, for instance, of a show like Breaking Bad. Uh, that show was about a guy who manufactured the drug ice. Uh, it was a brutal and disturbing show. Why saturate your mind with that? Why find your entertainment by immersing yourself in the kind of stories about things that God hates? That's not to say that everything on television is bad or that all fiction is bad. I was talking the other day uh, with someone about the documentary uh, Planet Earth. Uh, You might have seen it. It's uh, David Attenborough, uh, BBC, I think it was. Uh, And it's a wonderful documentary about creation. Uh, And it's amazing, the incredible wonders of God that we see uh, in that film. That's a great thing to to think on, isn't it? That's a noble thing to think about. Uh, Or take the footy. I I love watching the footy. Uh, I love watching the footy because it's amazing to see the wonderful things that people can do with the gifts that God has given them, isn't it? I just think it's stunning. It's just absolutely stunning what some people can do on a football field. It's not, 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 not stunning. Well, in all seriousness, I think it's a great lesson for us to learn to enjoy the gifts that God has given to other people. And our hearts may not actually immediately resonate with that thing, but It's good to learn to enjoy those things. It's good to learn to appreciate other people's knitting when you're not a knitter. (laughs) But Paul is saying, think about those things. Think about what's noble and what's good in the world. Go for a walk and look at creation. Go for a walk and notice the butterflies and notice the birds and notice the ants. Or think about kindness. Revel in that. Think about the acts of kindness that people show to each other. And don't just think about the acts of kindness that Christians show to each other. Think about the acts of kindness that all people show to each other. Because actually all kindness comes from God, doesn't it? We're created in God's image. And when people are kind to each other, what they're doing is reflecting the God who made them. They might not recognise that, and that's a great tragedy. But we can see it in them, can't we? And praise God for it. Reflect on the good things that God is doing in the lives of people around you, the compassion that someone has shown, the evangelistic zeal of someone, the slow plodding faithfulness of somebody else. And most of all, reflect on the gospel. Reflect on God's love for you as a sinner. Reflect on how he chose you before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Think about the good works that he's prepared in advance for you to do. Think about the good works that he has enabled you to do in the past week or the past day. Think about God's patience. Think about his fatherly care and his fatherly discipline. Think about his protection and guidance. Think about his glory and honour. The command is not, don't ever think about things which are painful and sad, or don't ever reflect on what's evil. Rather, the command is, be preoccupied with what is good. When your mind wanders, let it be a mind which wanders to things that are noble. And 
don't just think about noble things when your mind wanders, but purposely resolve to think about what's noble and good all the time. Make moments for it. And Paul doesn't just say, think. He also says, do, verse 9, and whatever you've learned, whatever you've received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. The more you think about it, the more likely you are to do it. But don't just think about it. Think about it and do it. Put it into practice. So ask yourself, how can this mercy which I see in God shape my life? Or how can this kindness that I see in that other person, how can that shape my life? And then put those things into practice. How can you stand firm in the gospel? You think about what's noble and and then let that shape your life. Sixth, you learn to be content in all circumstances. Verse 10, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Well, that is an art, isn't it? To be content in every situation. It's an art because the role of the advertising industry is to make us feel discontent uh, in every situation. You can't be content unless you have those shoes. And you can't be content unless you use that shampoo. Uh, It's amazing shampoo. You really have to try it. Uh, But our lives are surrounded by these messages of discontentment. And it's remarkably powerful, isn't it? You're probably aware of the fact that I'm not a particularly adventurous person. Uh, And yet still, I find myself walking past those posters, you know, of someone doing an extreme sport or something like that, climbing a mountain uh, with, you know, no ropes or anything like that. I think to myself... Well, my life would be complete, wouldn't it? I'd be a complete person if I could do that. Perhaps I'll buy that T-shirt. Uh, <laughs> so, so next time you see me wearing, you know, some extreme sports brand T-shirt, you think to yourself, yeah, Carl's fallen for it again. <laughs> the message of discontentment. But it's so powerful, isn't it? It's, it's so powerful that it can be utterly ridiculous. We are drawn to discontentment in areas that we otherwise don't feel discontent. But Paul has learned, he says, the secret of contentment. And this is the secret in verse 13. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. No other verse has been more wrenched out of its context than this one. Uh, Paul is not saying he can do everything absolutely anything at all through God. He's not saying he can win an Olympic gold medal or a Nobel Prize. Uh, He's just saying that we can do anything at all with respect to contentment through God who gives us strength. Uh, That's the secret. Whatever situation Paul faces, he can cope with it because God will give him all that he needs. And if he doesn't have what he thinks that he needs, the only answer must be that God doesn't think that he needs it. What do you need? A new car or a new house? 
a new carpet, a new mix master, a new oven, a new kitchen, a new wife, a new husband, a new child, a new job, a new hairstyle. <laughs> Driving past the hairdresser down the road the other day, uh, a few months ago, and there was a sign outside and it said, change your hairstyle, change your life. <laughs> and I thought, talk about overpromise and underdeliver. <laughs> what do you need? It's not a new hairstyle. No, what you need is God. Get God first. And then you'll be more sober to think about what else you need and what else you don't need. If you can't learn the secret of being content, you cannot stand firm in the faith. Let me say that again. If you cannot learn the secret of being content, you cannot stand firm in the faith. Because you'll end up like the people that Paul mentions at the end of chapter 3 who were Christians but are now enemies of the cross of Christ because their God is their belly. But if you seek God and pursue Christ, you will stand firm because you'll be content and because you can do all things through God who gives you strength. How do you stand firm in the gospel? You learn to be content in all circumstances. Finally, uh, last of all, you... Stand firm in the gospel by sharing with others in their troubles, other Christians in their troubles. Verse 14, Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I'm looking for a gift, but I'm looking for what may be credited to your account. I have received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Paul returns uh, here to the grand theme of chapter 1, that is partnership in the gospel. When Paul had been struggling, the Philippians had helped him out. Uh, They'd helped him out not just by praying, but they'd helped him out financially as well. They had supported him when nobody else had supported him. Now, it may be that they feared that by their financial support, they might jeopardise themselves. They might find themselves in financial trouble. But Paul reassures them that God will meet all their needs. God, uh, Paul reassures them that they can support him and God will still look after, after them. I think it seems an attractive option for us when things are hard to hunker down and to look after ourselves. So we retreat into our shell and we sort of go into protection mode. But Paul reminds the Philippians of how crucial it was that they shared in his trouble and how God won't forget that generosity and provide for them. As the external pressures increase on us, as we live out our love for Christ in Australia, we mustn't become protectionists. 
Even as we struggle to cope with the changes, we need to keep partnering with others in the gospel. We need to keep partnering with others here in this church. We need to keep partnering with other Christians from other churches in our state and our, uh, and our country and partnering with other Christians all over the world. You see, it could be very easy for us, I think, in the years ahead, as things become more difficult for us here to say, we're going to stop sending missionaries to other parts of the world. We're going to stop investing in gospel ministry beyond our small little borders here. It's too hard. We need to, we need to make this a stronghold. But actually, I think Paul is saying here, no, it's so important in standing for us to stand firm together as Christians around the world in the faith. It's so important for us to share in the troubles of other people, to share in the troubles of other Christians, to be partners in the gospel. When we do that, far from weakening us, it strengthens us and it delights our Heavenly Father. Well, how do you stand firm in the gospel? You agree with each other and don't let division drive, away, drive people away. You always rejoice. You let your gentleness be evident to all. You refrain from anxiety and pray with thankfulness. You think about what is noble and you learn to be content in all circumstances. Uh, or to put it another way, you partner with others in the gospel. You live a life worthy of the gospel and you pursue Christ. Uh, and as we seek to do that, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we're so saddened uh, and cut to the heart uh, and we grieve as we Think of those who have wandered away from the faith. Lord, some of those are our friends. Some of those are our parents or our children. Some of those are people that we grew up with in the church or that we went to school with. And Lord, it breaks our heart to see people now walking as enemies of the cross of Christ. Uh, but Lord, we pray that you would enable us to stand firm in the faith. That you would enable us to stand firm as we partner in the gospel and live lives worthy of the gospel and as we pursue Christ. Lord, we pray that none of us would drift away or fall away but that we would be strong to the end. And Lord, we pray for those uh, for whom that we grieve, that as we stand firm, you would enable us to hold out the light of the gospel to them. Uh, and in your unbounded love and mercy, that you would call them back to life and hope in Jesus Christ also. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.